The first reading today is from Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 6. It is on page 613 in your pew Bibles. Isaiah 53, 1 to 6, page 613. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The second reading is from Matthew 27, verses 45 to 54. It is on page 834 in your pew Bibles. Matthew 27, 45 to 54, page 834. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save them. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with them, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. And the third reading is from 1 Peter 3, verse 18. It is on page 1016 in your pew Bibles. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 page 1016. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
was just laughing because, well, back in the day, I would have been helping him get set up as a youth. Now here he is helping me get set up. It's pretty cool. Full circle for us, eh? Let's pray before we dive into this. I'm just going to turn back to the Isaiah message. Um, let's pray. Lord, thanks again for your love for us. And Lord, this morning we pray you would, uh, you would speak, Lord, that our thoughts as we look at the word and meditate on it, Lord, would be truthful, would be honoring to you. Lord, most of all, we would recognize the life that's here for us. That we don't just think good thoughts, but that we live changed lives because of what we've done. Lord, thanks for the life you give us. And as we look at your death, Jesus, we also celebrate all that it means for us. With the truth of that at uh, home today, settle deep in our bones that we may realize this requires a response of us. So Lord, bless us as we embark together to look at what this may be for our lives. In your name, amen. 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 Bless you. How are you doing? Well, it's good. Last week, if you were here, we looked at Jesus' virgin birth, and here we are at his death. <laughs> the cream tends to skip over a lot of material, if you didn't notice. Someone made the comment once, um, all Jesus' life is bound up in a single comma. If you look at uh, the Apostles' Creed, we jump right from conceived by the Holy Spirit and then suffered under Pontius Pilate, and so 33 years of life and ministry are kind of condensed to this one piece of punctuation. Um, and that's okay, because the creed is not trying to replace the Bible. It has a specific goal in mind. There's still the intention that you would read the Bible. But it wants to focus on very specific things. And we find out that the death of Jesus gets a lot of airspace. Gets, in fact, a lot of room. And we get five verbs that describe what Jesus went through. Did you notice that? You get, uh, well, you'll notice it in a minute when we read it, but if you have it in your bulletins, you get, a, it kind of like slows down and just meditates on all that Jesus goes through leading up to his death. You have suffered, crucified, died, buried, descended. Did you get the point, right? And it's telling you five different ways, five different angles you might say, this is what happened. This is what happened. And in fact, all four gospel accounts of Jesus' life all slow down when it gets to his passion. If you're reading along, when you get to that last week in Jerusalem, the whole story just shifts, and you get sort of these, this slow detail heading up to the cross. And the creed actually is, is mimicking that, is mirroring that in its own structure. It does the same sort of thing. This morning, we're going to ask the question, why should Jesus' death matter for us today? What's the point of talking about it? Why do we see crosses all over the place in our jewelry and in buildings and on this wall and on tattoos and anywhere else you might see? Why is the cross so significant? Um, and what on earth would it have to do with me, with you today? But before we dive in, I'll invite you to stand and we're going to say the creed together. And I think we can get it up on the wall. Brilliant. Would you stand with me? And if you're a Christian this morning, let's confess with brothers and sisters around the world 
and through the centuries, our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for doing that with me. I'd like to take uh, a few moments just to make a couple points from the Isaiah passage, talk about what that means for us, what's going on there, and then jump into Matthew and then kind of a larger sense of what, what this whole idea is about. Um, Isaiah did a series on Isaiah, not last Christmas, but I think Christmas before. It's really good, really enjoyed it. But Isaiah is speaking to his nation about God's coming judgment, God dealing with, with the nation's sin. They had given themselves to all sorts of abuses and oppression and idolatry and injustice. And Isaiah says, God will not ignore that. Something's got to be done with that. And that's why you're going to be exiled, taken out of your land, and taken to a different land. God's going to allow that to happen to deal with the sin that's going on in the nation. That's one part of Isaiah, but the second part is about hope. As much as God is going to deal with, with sin and act with justice in the world, God isn't going to leave it there. He's going to bring about his reign, his kingdom, his goodness, his grace to bear on the world. And so you've got God dealing with rampant sin, but also God uh, demonstrating his great love for us, so the two are bound together. And that hope is uh, articulated in this way, that God is, is promising to send a servant. And the servant is sort of this mysterious figure, uh, but he's going to fulfill what Israel can never fulfill. to be a faithful Israelite. And he's going to actually accomplish God's mission, which is to restore Israel back into loving relationship with himself, but also, which is really important, going back to Genesis 12, Genesis 3, um, that this servant is going to then help Israel live out its calling to be a blessing to the nations. It's through this servant that God's justice and righteousness and love are going to flow out and touch the nations of the world, that God's plan is going to be furthered through this, this servant that's going to announce God's kingdom, announce his goodness. But the surprising way that this servant is going to accomplish this mission is not through military prowess or educational reforms or even sort of religious modifications or any of that sort of thing. The surprising way he's going to do it is by being beaten and rejected and finally being killed by his own people. And Isaiah says, this servant's death will be a sacrifice of atonement. So if you turn with me to Isaiah 53, if you have it open, verses 4 to 6 are really the heart of the passage. And Isaiah says that this servant, who is completely innocent, 
He's sent by God to bear the weight and the punishment of human sin. And look at how it's described here in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, right? The sense of being upon him. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, again a similar word to born or carry, the Lord's laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so this servant, says Isaiah, without any support or understanding of the people around him, on his own, solo, willingly lets this happen, willingly takes on the sorrow and the sin and the grief of humanity. He willingly volunteers, offers himself to die. And verse 6 says, God's laid on him not just the iniquity of a few, not just the bad things of Israel, but us all. All of our iniquity, all of our sin is upon this servant, and we realize he's dying as a sacrifice. In fact, verse 7 says that. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He doesn't resist, is what that means. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We get this imagery of the lamb being led to the slaughter. I don't know if ever slaughtered lamb. I was part of it once, and it's true. Uh, no resistance from the sheep. Um, there's just this sense, of the way we, typically the way they do is ethically. I don't know the terminology at all, because I'm not a farmer. But anyway, they have the bold thing, and they go through the brain, and it kills the sheep. It's very humane. Um, the old-fashioned way is to take an knife. And the day we were helping with this, uh, the old didn't work. And so, uh, out came the knife. And the sheep just willingly lets you take it. And lets you take its life. Um, now, those of you that have hunted, those of you that are involved in dealing with wildlife, I know, just kind of knowledge to you, yeah, okay, good to go. Um, but if you're not familiar with all of that whole world, there is something about the life being shed. And you realize this is this was given. This lamb, this is why the, the imagery is used here in Isaiah. The lamb lets it happen. Led to the slaughter. Doesn't open his mouth. The idea here is that this person is now letting himself be sacrificed. And in Israel, of course, they're well aware of animal sacrifices. It's a very different world from us, different culture, right? And in that sense, in that time, there was always in Israel this uh, sort of mechanism in place to deal with sin. And the idea was your, your sins, all the bad stuff you do, could be transferred onto the animal. And the animal bore the iniquity of your sin, bore the punishment for your sin. You would be free and cleansed. But of course, that's only a temporary measure. Um, we keep on sinning, things keep on happening. And uh, it's, it's really just meant to help us understand the idea of blood needing to be shed, of life needing to be given to atone for sins, to cover for sins. And we'll talk about the, the, the depth of what sinfulness is in just a moment, why that's important. So Isaiah says, this person, 
allows the iniquity of Hassal to be placed upon him, much like an animal does in Israel's own story. And that, of course, would make more sense to them than us, because they're familiar with that sort of thing. So Isaiah says, this one is coming, he'll bear our sins, he'll atone for our evil by suffering in our place, and then he's going to lay his life down in this once and for all act of love, of self-giving. And now the New Testament, this is why I had us read Isaiah, hear the Isaiah passage, and then the Matthew passage. The, the, the New Testament makes the astounding claim that Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy to the That Jesus is the one who is God in flesh come to us, and that he is going to carry our sins and pay the price for them. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2.24. He says, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. And again, as I said, Isaiah stresses over and over all the ways that Jesus is carrying the sins. He's born them. He's carrying them. He's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our influence. Why on earth would God do this? Well, Paul in Galatians 2.20, he says this. He says, the Son of God, speaking of Jesus, gave himself for me because he loved me. God loves me. God loves you. God loves you. And that's the reason for the cross, folks. It's God's amazing love for you and for me. And you may think, okay, great. Um, but why the dying? Why does Jesus have to die? That's great that God loves me. But why, why is the problem so serious? Um, when we had our, have our sons, we had three sons, and, uh, and it's amazing, really, really quite a thing. Um, new life, right? They're full of innocence, and, and it's wonderful and beautiful, and there they are. And... Messy and difficult and all the rest of it. Um, you know, they're not an accident, right? They're made in God's image, and you see early on how they are just capable of amazing goodness and creativity and, and love and life. I was telling the story in prayer. Uh, it was so it was so cute. The other night, I I was putting Rowan in bed, and it was all dark, and I kind of leaned in and hugged him, whatever. And I said, you know, I, Rowan, I'm just so glad that I am your dad. So glad I can. And he looks at me and goes, I'm so glad I'm your grandson. <laughs> Clearly, mom and my, my parents have been talking to him, right? He knows who he is. I said, actually, I just laughed. No one was asleep already. I said, actually, just my son. Oh, okay. So the next night, I, next night I said, I'm so glad I'm your dad. He goes, I'm so glad I'm your grandson. Did totally <laughs> But this amazing capacity, right, for, for humor and creativity and goodness and life, uh, it's amazing, but it doesn't take very long to realize our children are also capable of disobeying, of not listening, of being ridiculous, right? You know pretty quickly. And in fact, we had an incident this morning that was not super fun. That's funny to think of as a kid, because we just kind of laugh. You know, there they are, and they don't listen. But of course, as we become adults, as you grow through adolescence and you get you get older and should get wiser, we realize it's not just a capacity to not listen, it's actually a capacity for evil. And as we become adults and we're engaged in the world and some get a measure of power, 
we recognize more and more the capacity for human violence and for destruction and for oppression and for all sorts of injustices. Of course, you just turn on the news at any time and you will see this. I went on, I, I counted once, I went to the front page of my internet browser, I'd opened it up for something, you can't remember, but there's a number of news articles at the bottom. I don't know if you get those, but it's seven or eight. I think there was ten. Anyway, all but two were, like, terrifying. All but two were about that. And you know that feeling, right? You go on and it's just like, here's a hurricane situation. Here's a bunch of people that died. Here's someone whose kid, something terribly unspeakable happened. And here's how the economy's in crisis. And here's some ridiculous thing some politician said. You know, here's something about North Korea, North Korea or something, right? Like, you know, and it's something terrifying, of course. You know, like, on and on it went. There was two that were like, this animal was cute in this zoo, you know? And you're like, oh, that's nice. But everything else was, was awful. It was terrible. Bad news. And we can't just say, well, you know, there's, there's those evil people over there, and then here's the good people. We can't really do that, because the situation's way more complex than that. The Bible uses this really specific word to talk about this part of humanity, right? It's sin. It's the word we've been using all morning. It's the word you'll hear when you go to churches, and when you hear people talk about this sort of thing. But sin in the Bible is used to describe all of the, all the bad stuff in our life. But it's not just like, I made a little mess up, or like, I made a little accident, and I sinned. Or to use it in like a good way, like this is so sinfully delicious, you know, like this is like this chocolate cake is sinful, you know. Um, that's really downplayed. In the Bible, sin is used to describe sort of our total inclination as people towards ourselves and away from God. Anytime that we kind of go against the grain of what God would have for us and give it to our own desires in such a way that it's actually self-destructive. This is what the Bible talks about as sin. We go against what's actually for our own well-being. And Paul says, actually, this isn't just for the few over there with the weapons of mass destruction. This is everyone. All of us do this. All of us are sinful. And he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means sin's not just like an issue for a couple. It's an issue for all of us. Now, none of us wants to think we're a sinner, right? You may think, well, hey, I'm not perfect but, like, I'm better than that other guy. You know? Like, at least I didn't do that. Or, like, I didn't, I didn't kill anybody. So, like, that's pretty good. You know? And, like, I didn't, didn't do this thing. I didn't lie about my whatever. Or steal the thing. Whatever it is, you know? Like, I'm, compared to somebody else, I'm okay. The problem is, um, the Bible doesn't do that sort of comparing. That's not how... That's not how Christianity teaches about sin. In fact, God doesn't do that sort of compare. Um, humorously, this is what a lot of people think is what God does. It sort of, set, you know, sort of scores us, like it's like a rating system. Um, and the TV show, I feel it's like The Good Place. It's The Good Place. The whole premise of The Good Place is that all through your life, you sort of are racking up a score. You know, you did some good stuff, you get a little higher, you did some bad stuff, it goes a little lower, and then when you die, your rating is kind of like plugged into a system and that decides whether you go to heaven or hell. Like it's just kind of based on your performance review. The problem is, God is not checking the performance review. The Bible doesn't teach about a performance review. It's not a comparison. God doesn't do that. 
And according to God's standard of goodness, folks, we're all sinners. And here's the thing. Sin isn't just stuff you do. It's actually inherent to who you are, like you're terminal with it. It's like cancer. And the problem is there's, there's like real consequences to this sin too. And, and the first thing is that sin, like I said, it's, it's cancer. It's like pollution. Jesus says you can actually pollute your own life, pollute your relationships with God and each other. So Isaiah 64 puts it this way. It says, we've all become like one who's unclean. And all our righteous deeds, all the good stuff you think that might add up and kind of help you out a little bit, all that good stuff, it's like putting on a polluted garment. It does nothing for you. So sin is it's cancerous. Sin's also really controlling. It's powerful and addictive. John 8 says, uh, Jesus is answering, he says, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's like it's like taking a shot of drugs, right? Like, like you can get addicted to heroin or whatever. You get addicted to uh, you can get addicted to sin. You can get addicted to living out your own greed or your own envy or your own lust, whatever that may be. And the danger of, of that, not only does it does it pollute us or poison us, and not only is it incredibly powerful and addictive, but sin also has a really intense cost. And Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We want people who are caught, you know, raping or murdering to experience justice, right? We want what they deserve to get the penalty for their crimes. We want to see things made right in the world, don't we? That's what we want. The problem is, um, it's not just that the big things have consequences, right? It's not just other people's sin that needs to be punished, it's ours as well. It, we contribute to the problem. And sin also terribly, it makes this chasm, it breaks our relationship with God, it creates this big emptiness, this big gap. Just like how lying or cheating in a, in a marriage or in a relationship or friendship just creates this, this, this big chasm, this big openness, this big disconnect, right? It severs something. When we sin and we get disconnected from God, folks. And, and if God is the ultimate source of life, to be disconnected to him naturally means leading to some kind of death. Sin actually puts us on a road towards spiritual death. Folks, that's where the cross comes into play. It shows us that God wants to do something about sin, the, the incredible powerfulness of sin and its addiction in our lives. He's not going to ignore it He's not going to downplay it. He's actually going to do something about it. And he comes to deal with it personally in Jesus. And if you turn with me to the Matthew passage, Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 46. I'm Mark. Matthew 27. Here's Jesus' death on the cross. Here he is being weighed down with all of human sinfulness. Matthew 27, verse 46. This is page 834 in your, in your pew Bibles. It says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is not just experiencing the physical torment of dying on the cross. You realize the Romans were really good at killing people, so they. <laughs> They're like, what's the best instrument of execution that will make people really suffer? 
right, is the cross. So they get him up there, and they put you on there, and you, uh, not only does it really hurt having nails driven through your hands and your feet, um, but you can't catch a breath, so you actually kind of die of asphyxiation, because you can't get a good breath in to push up on your feet. Yeah, we hear you. It's okay. <laughs> right? To push up to try and catch a breath is incredibly painful, because you can't push against the nail, and then once you catch a breath, you can stay back down, and you can't breathe in again. It's really, really, it's a really cruel way of dying. So that physical pain is terrible, but here Jesus is experiencing the spiritual pain of being separated from the Father as he experiences that chasm of sin upon himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In 1 Peter 2.24, talking about Jesus again, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, meaning on the cross, that we, the news, that we might die and live to righteousness. So Jesus takes, folks, he takes the consequences of our sin upon himself. It's described as the self-substitution of God. God putting himself in your place and dying on your behalf. That's how it's described. So here's an illustration. Um, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, which are fantastic, and everyone should read them. <laughs> yeah, you won't um, In the first book Lewis wrote, which is the second book in the series, which is confusing, but anyway, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, tells the story of four kids, and one of the kids, Edmund, uh, is really quite mad about most of life. He's especially mad at his siblings, and uh, he kind of wants to get back with them. And they discover this magical world, and Edmund is in this world, and he meets the White Witch, and she is bad news. But Edmund uh, sidles up to her, and she sort of buys Edmund's trust by giving him treats. Turkish delight, actually, which is apparently not even that good. So, like, Edmund, what were you thinking? It's not even, like, a good treat. But anyway, he, he decides to sell out his siblings so he can get in good with the witch. Because he's mad at them, right? Especially at Peter, his older brother. He's going to get Peter's going to get what he deserves. Don't like him. Um, and in the end, as things progress, he realizes it's gotten totally out of hand, and the witch doesn't care about him at all, and she's not going to fulfill her promises to him at all. And you know, it's just a mess. And so he he he's rescued, and he becomes repentant, and he joins with his other siblings, and with Aslan, the great lion. And you're like, awesome, Edmund's learned his lesson. Great. And I, too, will not uh, take out my anger at other people by giving to evil, right? Um, excellent. And then what happens is the witch shows up and says, well, Edmund actually owes me his life. Because he's made this deal with me, he's actually mine, and uh, I'm going to go. And in this terrible moment, as Edmund is, like, traumatized, I'm so sorry about you. And then the siblings are like, we forgive you, and this is awful. Aslan steps in and says, I'll take Edmund's place. Instead of giving Edmund over to the witch, I'll go in his stead. And Aslan lays down his life for someone who didn't even believe Right? And Lewis wrote it as a direct parallel to what Jesus does for us. Very intentional. That God goes in our place, even when we didn't deserve it, even when we're not repentant, even when we're not willing to follow him, he still goes and dies in our place so that we have the chance to live in his forgiveness and in his freedom. 
This week I was watching uh, the Alpha Course youth video series, which is really, really good. And there was a couple of illustrations that really hit home to me, and I wanted to share them this morning because they, they just really connected this whole point about the cross. This is the first story. It says, on the 31st of July, 1941, sirens rang out from cell block 14 in Auschwitz concentration camp. The prisoner had attempted to escape. As punishment, the prison guards chose 10 men at random to die in the starvation bunker. The ninth man selected cried out when he was chosen, my wife, my children, I'll never see them again. At that moment, another man stepped forward and offered to die in his place. And at everyone's amazement, his offer was accepted. That man was a Christian. He was a Catholic priest named Maximilian Colby. He was taken with the other nine to the starvation bunker. Fifteen days later, they were all still alive. So on August 14, 1941, the guards killed them all by the injection. 41 years later, on the 10th of October, 1982, the death of Maximilian Colby was put in its proper perspective at St. Peter's Square in Rome, in front of a crowd of 150,000 people. Pope John Paul II described Maximilian's death in these terms. He said, it was a victory, like that won by our Lord Jesus Christ, as he gave his life for another. And this is what Isaiah describes Jesus doing for us, folks. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned our own way. The Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of the Son, so that you don't have to. It's kind of like this. This is another, another example that, uh, that I saw in the Elf video, which was really helpful. It said, imagine, imagine I have both my hands, because I don't. Hold my Imagine here, here's our, our relationship with God, and it, it's wide open, right? There's nothing separating us from God, and it's just, there it is, open and free, and, and, and we can be in relationship with Him. And then He said, Imagine, imagine this is sin, and it, it carries, it's laid on us, it blocks our relationship with God. We can't get through to Him. It's that chasm, it's that cancer, it's that controlling uh, drug, right? And it pollutes us. Then he said, then imagine, this is my other hand, imagine here's Jesus, and he's in living communication with the Father. He is in health with the Father. He's open in relationship to God. God's desire is to do this. Right? To take the sin that's laid on us and lay it on Jesus instead so that we can be open to God. And Jesus will take the burden of sitting on himself. And what we believe as Christians, and we'll get there in the coming weeks as we finish the decree, Jesus dies to that weight of sin, but is resurrected again in the power of the Spirit, and we can be united with him. The third story that illustrates this point, again from this great Alpha video, I'll have to watch it sometime. It's the story of these two boys. They did everything together. They were best friends in school. They went to kindergarten together. They went through elementary school together. They went to high school together. Then they went to college together. They grew up their beards, their sticky, patchy beards together. 
you know, they were just a mess, and they, they flunked classes together. <laughs> Eventually, they both graduated together. And, and, you know, they're best friends, and, but they finished university, and, and then they kind of went their separate ways. And the one went and became a lawyer. He was doing pretty good. Um, the other one fell into a life of crime. And over time, their careers progressed. The lawyer actually became a judge, and uh, the, the guy who kind of went through his life of crime got worse into crime, and eventually he was captured and arrested and brought to trial. And on the day of his trial, they walked him out to the platform, and who is his judge but his childhood friend? And the judge looks at his friend with shock and heartbreaking, realizing this is the boy he grew up with, and yet now he's called to levy a proper judgment for what, what this man's committed. He can't just ignore it, right? Things have happened. He's done stuff. He, is, he needs to enact the justice system. And so with tears in his eyes, he... They go through the trial, and he eventually levies his decree, and it's this huge fine, this huge, huge, huge fine. And the, the criminal realizes, I'll never be able to pay it. I just, I can't pay it. I know I won't be able to pay it. So the judge gives his sentence, and the criminal's heart just sinks, and he stands up being prepared to, to be escorted out. And at that moment, the judge stands up and takes off his robes and gets down off the platform goes to his friend and writes a check for the amount in full. Folks, that's what Jesus has done in our place. And it's even more amazing than a monetary value. God himself gets up off the throne. He doesn't ignore the need for justice, but he gets off and takes the punishment upon himself. It's the self-substitution of God for us. And now because of that, because the price has been paid, we can live in the freedom and salvation and forgiveness of God. Jesus leads us to a place where our old sinful habits and our old sinful behaviors begin to break. We begin to get free of them. We begin to live in a new life. Sometimes that change happens instantly. I remember when Keith came to faith, he tells the story about dealing with stuff in your own life, and in the moment of coming to Christ, a whole bunch of stuff just broke out of him. Never had to deal with it again. It's amazing, and that happens for a lot of people. For others, it's a slow process as we learn how deep our sin goes and how deep we need to kind of root out old things that we've gotten so used to. But John says in chapter 836, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And that means we can experience freedom, folks, from the grip of sin and the power of sin, the pollution of sin, and realize that Jesus cleanses us. And in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, God in Jesus was reconciling the world to himself. Remember the suffering servant from Isaiah. He's taking it upon himself so the good news of God can go out to the world. He's not counting our trespasses against us. But he's now entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. Folks, the cross is God bringing the world back in love to himself, dealing with our sin, not ignoring it like the judge on the stand, dealing with it, but also coming and removing the barrier that we create. And it's just like in Matthew, veil being torn as Jesus dies, this symbol that now intimacy and connection with God, relationship with God are now available 
for everyone. And because Jesus died, folks, to bring you into relationship with God, we now realize God fully adopts us as his own. He comes running to bring you home, to embrace you, to adopt you. So I don't know where you are today, folks, but I think the call for us from these passages is to ask again, do we know the salvation of Jesus in our lives? Maybe you've walked with him for years. Maybe it's a good reminder of all that he's done for you. But maybe you're here today and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. You've never made a decision to lay down your sin, to repent and to believe, and to believe in Jesus. And by faith, say, Lord, I need you. And I thank you that you came in my place so I can know your life and your freedom. So I'm going to invite us to pray. Let's bow our heads as we transition to the table. And maybe you're here today, you've never given your life to the Lord. I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer after me. If you would like to receive Jesus as your Savior. You can repeat this prayer even in the quietness of your own heart. I encourage you to come and talk to myself and one of the pastoral team if this is hit home for you today. Let's pray together. And if you're here today and you would like to invite Jesus into your heart, just repeat this after me. Say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he died for my sin, that you raised him to life. I want to trust him as my Savior. I want to follow him as my Lord from this day forward. Jesus, guide my life. Help me to do your will. In your name. Amen. Friends, God transforms our lives. That's the desire behind the cross. That's what it's all about. As we come to the table, I'll invite the communion ushers guys to come up and meet me over here on the side. As we come to the table, 